Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man man did not delay to do the thing because he was delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamer and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamer and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah, out of Shechem's house and went away. 
The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The sword of God, you may be seated. Chapter 34 is a uh, disturbing chapter in the scripture. Um, When I preach, I like live that my whole week. This is what I've been living my whole week was chapter 34. And um, that's why I had to have a little humor in today's title of won't you be my neighbor and Levi and Simeon say no thanks. In chapter 34, there are no good guys. Everyone acts dishonorably. But I would say to you today, the process of God making a message out of our messes is often a long one. In our scripture today, Jacob and his family, they are in the middle of chaos and dysfunction and tragedy. Your life often falls into patterns like this of dysfunction, tragedy, and chaos. With kids, spouses, exes, uh, siblings, jobs, illnesses, know that your story is not over yet, just like their story isn't over. And that God will make a message out of your mess. It may take longer than you want and certainly longer than what you're thinking. In Genesis, after chapter 12, the narrative shifts from the first three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the 12 patriarchs. The 12 tribes of Israel come from these 12 men. And the dysfunction in these 12 men are greater than the ones between from their great-grandfather, grandfather, and father. Genesis 12, the narrative switches, from a dysfunc- um, switches to a dysfunctional family. God uses this family to bless the world. The male leaders of this family are known as the patriarchs. Every generation has its problems. Um, and it would appear that every generation's their problems get worse and the dysfunction is worse. Abraham has his fight with his nephew Lot. Lot moves to Sodom and Gomorrah and nearly gets caught up in its destruction. Abraham tells the kings of Egypt and the Philistine that his wife is actually his sister. Isaac does the same thing. And then Isaac also, in contrary to the word of the Lord, tries to bless his oldest son Esau, even though he ends up blessing Jacob instead. Jacob and Esau, they have an epic sibling rivalry. Jacob has a rivalry with his father-in-law Laban. Esau comforts himself with the idea of killing his brother even. But in every case, God restore what man breaks. And it would appear that the more chaos, the more glorious the redemption to be seen. Jacob's 12 sons take the cake when it comes to dysfunction. In certain ways, the narrative changes to Jacob's sons. They really are the mover now of the story. They are also called the patriarchs in the rest of the scripture. They take the gold medal when it comes to dysfunction, destruction, and deceit. They learn well from their dad, but their redemption and restoration 
is so much better than what we've read so far. See, we we see what was awesome last week, Jacob and Esau, they coming together as brothers. But then Jacob fools Esau once again, tells him he's going to go one way, he goes another. As far as we know from the scripture account, they don't really come back together. The redemption that will happen within these 12 brothers is so much better. Often, the restoration that God wants to work in our life is going to take longer than what we want or what we think, but is often more glorious than we could ever dare hope for. This chapter records the first major action of these brothers, and it is dramatic to say the least. My sister and brother-in-law were here a couple months ago, and my nephew And my brother-in-law, we were talking, he reminded me of this time, me and my uh, little brother Brent, we were just hanging out with him casually. And just like out of nowhere, as we're talking, um, one after the other at different times, turned to him, deadpan, and say, you hurt my sister, I'll kill you. Simeon and Levi, they really meant that. (laughs) They really meant that. Um, this This is not an easy chapter to preach on. No one acts honorably, let alone righteously. It's dark. It's as dark as the world. It's surprising to me the reaction, though, this chapter gets out of young men. I think men in general, and I think young men feel this more than others, is that desire to protect. Protect those you love, to protect those who are important to you. And the rage that you would feel if the person you are in charge of protecting is hurt. So when I preached this, I remember I preached this in a youth group one time. And one of our students, his name was Trevor, and Trevor was quite the character. After I got done with uh, the scripture here, as Becca got done, he, uh, he blurts out, he's like, they brought the pain. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you can say that. And last week after service, uh, Jeb Dow, they're, they're over at uh, his uh, aunt's uh, wedding uh, today. He said he was really bummed out because he's not going to be here today to hear me preach on this chapter. I do think that there's something that is, it is blessed to want to protect those that God has entrusted to you, but there is no virtue that God has put in mankind that the devil doesn't pervert, even protection. Because it goes to a place of selfishness, it goes to a place of, of more than vengeance, more than justice, and to satisfy our own cathartic needs. When I was younger, when I was a teenager, um, this older kid had blindsided my brother and had um, punched him and it was icy ground, so he fell down. When I heard about that, I was literally seeing red and shaking. And I had a friend drive me around town. I was gonna find this guy. I don't know what I was gonna do with him. But I, I was so upset. I was so upset. I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to chew nails and, or whatever, breathe fire, because no one gets to hurt my brother but me, Right? No one gets to beat up my brother but me. How dare he? My, and then I, then I felt such shame because I should have been there to protect my brother. That's how these brothers feel right here. And this is where Satan slips in, right? He takes something that's noble, selfless, and makes it very selfish. Most churches look to share something encouraging for your life and make it somewhat entertaining. Many Christians just want a nice, encouraging verse, but taking verses out of context just for our own encouragement will not bring about the holiness that God wants to do in our life. So yes, I preach on the difficult verses as well. Um, Many Christians just want a nice encouraging verse they can have on their coffee mug that 
that makes a good pr- uh, picture with their croissant and their Bible so that they can post on Instagram, hashtag blessed. No one's putting Genesis chapter 34, verse 31 on a coffee mug for their Instagram photo op. David Gusick said, this chapter contains one of the most shameful incidents in Israel's history. A terrible crime was committed against Dinah, the daughter of Leah, but the response by her brothers was worse than the crime. When the Bible shows its leaders and heroes in such terrible, plain truth, we know for sure that it is a book from God. Men don't normally write about themselves and their ancestors like this. And you understand, right? In the physical, when they talk about their claim to Canaan, it is from their ancestors. But their claim is not because of our ancestors conquered a people, but because it was given to them by God. And it was nothing in them but all of grace. One wet warning flag in this chapter is that you do not see a mention of God. Not El, not Elohim, not Adonai, not Yahweh. God is not mentioned in this chapter. Oftentimes when we are mistaking our vengeance, when we are mistaking our own selfish desires, we don't want God to be part of that unless it's to use God to try to gain our own goals as they do with the covenant of circumcision. But God is not mentioned in this. But what is here is one, it's defilement, deceit. Two is deceit. Three is destruction. Defilement, verses one through six. Before we dive into the scripture, I want to remind you, Jacob doesn't return to Bethel. Not yet. Before we get into these verses here, let's remember God had called Jacob to come back to the promised land. It's one of those things that when um, Jewish readers read it even to this day, and certainly back in the Exodus, they would have said, it goes without saying, he should go back to Bethel. Because God tells him in chapter 31, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Jacob doesn't return to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. It's where he had this experience with God, where he has this dream and there's the staircase and angels are sending and descending. And when he wakes up, he says, God was surely in this place, though I knew it not. And he names it Bethel, which means house of God. And it should go without saying, yes, if you're going to return to your kindred, First, go to this place where you met with God. Jacob doesn't return to Bethel, and he does not venture into Seir like he had told his brother. Like he had told his brother, he settles by a city. He's acting so much like his great uncle, Lot. Lot, when he splits away from Abraham, goes to Sodom. He camps outside the city, then he's living inside the city. He nearly gets caught up in the destruction. His wife gets turned to a pillar of sand. And his daughters defile him. You know, if we repeat the mistakes of those before us, we can expect to have similar outcomes. He does not go where he he knows he should go. Instead, he goes first to Sukkot and and then to Shechem. After these events, he will return to Bethel. We often need to return to Bethel ourselves. I don't mean the physical location. You don't need to call your travel agent but go back in your heart to the place where you met with God. For many of us, it's just simply a memory. For me, it's a memory of when the Lord spoke to me in my bedroom, when he saved me all those years ago when I was a junior higher. 
For me, it's going back to that place where he had called me into ministry. For me, it's going to that place where he comforted me after the death of my father. Often we need to go back to that place in our hearts because we get lost in the chaos of Shechem. We get lost in the pursuit of all those earthly things. And we need to be told what the church in Ephesus was told in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. You know, I think for a lot of people, you're going to have to put this in your heart because there's going to come a time where you're going to be lost. And when you're lost, just remember this. Remember, repent, and return. Remember, we're going the wrong direction. Stop. That's the first thing. Stop doing it. And then remember what it was like in your father's house. Remember what Bethel was like, the house of God. And then return back. We're not there yet. We have to go through the desert of this of this disobedience, this partial obedience. Unfortunately, Jacob learned the wrong lessons from his grandfather, Abram, and he only has partial obedience by going to Shechem. In verse 1 of chapter 34, we start off with Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, the daughter of Leah. She is the youngest. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born um, to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. From what we know, a, cl- a close observation of the scripture, she should be between 13 and 15, which was um, at least a couple of generations after that would have been the marrying age of that time. I know that's weird for us. 13, 15 year old girls, you are not marriageable age. Um, we are in a different time. Um, but she would have been marriageable age. Um, she would have been a very vulnerable state because being marriageable age, She's seen a certain way, as you can understand. She's very naive because she's always lived in a place of safety. Before this, she lived in the land where Laban, her grandpa, ruled like a tyrant. Nobody's messing with his granddaughter. But now they've moved to a different place. They've moved to a place of the Canaanites, of the sinners, of the world at large, the real world. But nobody's prepared Dinah for the real world. So she goes out by herself and no one can really blame her either. She's a teenage girl and she's curious. What is this place like? Where, where do the cool kids hang out? I want to figure out that. She has no idea the danger. See, where was, in all these things, if, if, they, had been, if they had gone to Seir, her uncle Esau, considering what a man of war he was, she would have had protection there. When she was in the land of her, great, of, her, of her grandpa, of Laban, nobody messes with her there. But they're in a different place, and she has no protector. Her protector should have been her father. Should have been her father. Should have made sure she was not unattended, because he understands the world at large. Morris says, unattached young women were considered fair game in cities of the time in which promiscuity was not only common, but in fact, part of the religious system itself. Fathers, you are priests of your home. You are priests of your home. Abraham and Isaac, and then later on, Jacob, they were priests of their home. They build altars where they sacrificed to the Lord, where they made their oaths, where they would teach their children of the ways of the Lord. You are, so you are, you are priests of your home and you are also protectors of your children. 
First and foremost, you are salt and light to them to show them the example of a godly man or woman. You are also protectors of your children. Are they equipped? Are they ready for the real world? Jacob and Lot. Jacob had made, a, had made the mistake Lot, his great uncle before him. He thought he would, be, it would, he would get nice and close to the fire without being burned. How many people have I known have done the same thing? They do the very unwise things. It's not sin yet, but they know it's unwise. And they think, okay, I can, I, can, I can pitch my tents real close to Sodom and Gomorrah and I'll be just fine. I can move into Sodom and Gomorrah. I can be part of the legislator over in Sodom and Gomorrah and I will never get burned. The consequences of folly and sin are not only felt by us, but those close to us as well. It'd be nice if it was just the inconsiderate moron who got in trouble, but it's not. It would seem the greatest victims of our idiocy are those close to us. We could compare Jacob and Lot's daughters to see the most devastating consequences of partial obedience or no obedience at all. We are about to hear in verse 2 of his, by the way, I hope you figured out before Sunday morning, chapter 34, we're talking about very serious matters here. She is raped. He wanted to hang out with the world. The world got in his house. Same with his great uncle Lot. They want to live by Sodom and Gomorrah. They live in Sodom and Gomorrah. He becomes part of the town council in Sodom and Gomorrah. And at the end of all of his story, his daughters rape him. You don't have a choice. You have to live in the world. I mean, you can try to be like the, the Mennonites, sorry, the Amish, uh, the Hutterites, but even them, the world gets into their, into their communes as well. So you don't have a choice. You live in the world, but you don't have to be of the world. Mothers, fathers, you get to decide how much of the world comes into your house. Even if you're single folks today, you get to decide how much of the world you're going to let in. Some of the world's going to get in because you're a 21st century American. Of course, you use the lingo, lingo, you go out into the world, you hear the music, but you get to decide how much you're going to let it into your heart and into your house. If you have just free reign of the world into your house, don't be surprised that your children grow up as just men and women of this world. And so often I'll have, I'll have uh, parents talk with me, especially when I was a youth pastor, they're like, why is my kid not acting right? I'm like, well, you haven't really modeled the best thing for them, have you? Jacob hadn't either. Jacob right here, if we look at Jacob's move to Shechem purely from an economic view, it is very wise, if not almost genius. There are significant crossroads in the ancient Near East right by Shechem. There is very few places in the ancient world, better than Shechem if you want to sell your goods. And they are living outside of a city, so they get to sell their goods to people coming into the city before they even got in there. It is a very wise move economically, but no job is worth your family. No, no amount of money can offset losing a relationship with your kids. No house or property can sue the daughter who's been raped like Dinah. A fatherless generation has been incredibly bad. I weep for our society as we are entering into a fatherless and motherless generation. In verse 2, verse 2 is terrible, terrible situation. The rape of Dinah. And then Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her and seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. 
Leopold says, this occurrence serves to illustrate the low standard of morals prevalent among the Canaanites. Any unattended female could be raped, and in the transaction that, that ensues, neither father, neither Hamor, nor Shechem apologizes for ex- or, or, or excuses what they had committed. Understand that, that they don't even see it as a sin or even a problem. It's a dark world. Are you prepared to shine? That wasn't just back then either. Even young, unattended women to this day can be taken off the road. And I'm not sure how much I want to share of this, but we know a young woman who that literally happened to in the United States. Still breaks my heart to this day because it's like something out of a grim fairy tale of a wolf snatching a child. That was America. I'm so glad that this is actually finally, human trafficking is finally entering the, the consciousness and you see people fighting against us. Why would you do such a thing? Because our world's still dark. Our world's still a place where this happens. I know I'm repeating this from this, the latest movie here, but God's children are not for sale. Pastor Andrew Curry says of Shechem, in verses three and four, we see a, a, something that's very hard for us to understand. Verse three, and, the soul, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Verse four, so Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get this girl for my wife. Pastor Andrew Curry says of Shechem that he is a natural man. And we forget about this because we dress up society so much to where people really think that, that at the center, most people are very decent, but natural man is often carnal, self-serving, and abusive. Carnal, self-serving, and abusive. Sin is such a deceiver. It says that he loved her, but it was a soulless love. It was the kind of love the world has, a love that's only concerned with self. We might call that, we might use the word lust today. Lust has often been confused with love in every society ever. I hear about couples who get divorced because after a few years, after four years, the sexual excitement ends. But that was never love. If the only reason why you are attached to somebody is because of what you can get from them, that is not love. How the Bible describes love is miles, is another world different than the world uh, describes love. Verses five and six. That surprises me because Jacob, when he hears about this, he does nothing. He's a father to a raped daughter and he does nothing. So at first I thought, okay, maybe it's because he's waiting for the muscle to come back in from the field and then he's gonna demand justice. Not what he does though. Verses five and six. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled, that, that he, speaking of Shechem, had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were, were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So I thought, surely, surely he's just waiting. And then as you read on here, he does nothing. He goes ahead with their plan He's very passive. When it comes to family, he's very passive. He wants to make a deal. Jacob, when it came to family, had been very passive already. When his wives were giving him their maidservants for wives, he says nothing. He goes along with it. When his wives are bartering days with him, he says nothing. He's not in control of his own body. How can he be in control of his family? 
He's very passive here. If, if dad, um, then it forces his sons to ask the question, if, ga- if dad is not going to stand by our sister, who is? I'd like to remind you that these sons didn't grow up with Israel, the one who strives with man and God. They grew up with Jacob, the heel grabber. It's very recent in their history has he become Israel. Be careful, little feet, where you walk. It's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. And they follow in the ways of their father. Verses 7 through 24, deceit. In verse 7, we have it already right, right there. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field, and as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Verse 8, But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her, to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and wherever you say to me, I will give. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, uh, for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Um, I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Then Jacob's Then Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father, Hamor, deceitfully. Barnhouse says, Jacob, you brought this trouble on yourself. You passed your own deceitful nature on to your boys. You set them a constant example of guile. They heard you lie to Esau at Penel and start northwest after he went southeast. They saw your interest in the fat pastures when you pitched your tent in Shechem. You said nothing when Dinah was violated. Talk to God about your own sin before talking to your boys about theirs. What is tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next. And by the third generation, it becomes a way of life. Believe that. That is what we're living right now. Like we talk about issues here in church. If you go to the local high school, you start talking about especially when you talk about sexual issues, it's not a question. It's not controversial. What's controversial is that somebody should say anything against the current sexual ethic of our age. Oh, that's just a dinosaur point of view, basically. What is tolerated in one generation is celebrated in the next and becomes just a way of life in the third. Jacob's deceit is multiplied amongst his sons. When the head of the family does not operate, someone fills that vacuum and often sinfully. Jacob's refusal to do what is right in regard to his family will encourage his two sons, two of his sons, to do something, something terrible in response. When God appointed heads to take appropriate leadership, it creates, when, when God appointed heads do not take appropriate leadership, it creates a void which is often filled sinfully. Men, you are the priest of your homes. Are you acting like the priest of your homes? Don't put that on your wives. God has made you that. The brothers rage. In verse seven, I already read that to you. They hear about this and they are reasonably upset. They are furious. This is their sister. You can see how sin seeps into that protective instinct, that righteous protective instinct 
because their plot, it does not just punish the perpetrator, it punishes everyone around him. In verses 8 through 12, Shechem and Hamor, they plan, how do they plan to right this wrong? They don't intend on punishing Shechem. No, they intend on offering money and wealth to overlook this. To Jacob, this is an offer he can't refuse, but to the brothers, it's an offer they can't excuse. So in verses 13 through 17, they have their plan, and it's kind of a genius plan, to be honest. In fact, if we were not told already they answered him deceitfully, I think there'd be some debate on exactly what happened, that maybe they just intended on killing Shechem, and they just got, they just had, just went crazy with bloodlust or something, but we know this was the plan all along. They answered him deceitfully. And how do they answer him deceitfully? They use the covenant of circumcision to do it. If you don't remember, you can go back in the Wayback Machine on our website, on YouTube, on Facebook. When I told you about the significance of the covenant of circumcision, that it was a physical sign of a spiritual thing of where God would cut away the sinful nature. He'd give us a new heart and a new life. They use it as a weapon of deceit and subterfuge. And to this day in churches, we see similar things happen. When somebody has an ax to grind, they will say, God forbid you doing this. God told me X, Y, and Z. Because you know that that carries weight instead of just saying, I'm upset because you did this. So I think we need to right this wrong. We say things like, well, God told me this. And in churches across the nation, I was just talking with a pastor this last week. He had enough of his church and he had resigned from his church because the constant gossiping, and it was about nothing significant. It was just people coming against him and they would, they would color it in religious sounding language that God was telling them to do this. And it was about the most silliest of things until they destroyed his reputation amongst the people in his church. Jacob's sons, that's what they do. They say, okay, and it's very clever too, because here's the thing. They cannot join with another people. They're God's covenant people. If people want to join with them, fine. So yes, if people want to join with them, the males have to be circumcised. But you know what they don't say right here? And you have to worship our God. And you have to see Jacob as your chief as your leader, because he's the leader of our family. You're now adopted into our family. They don't say any of that. They say a very plausible lie, right? Is that, hey, we're a people of circumcision. So if your men are not circumcised, you can't marry our daughter. Here's what they know, because they've gone through circumcision, because whatever servants they've acquired as adults have gone through circumcision, they know that, first of all, you don't have Dr. Brent doing the circumcision, you, you got somebody in the camp finding a sharp rock to do it. And I was reading, I was reading on uh, WebMD and I was reading children's hospitals about what happens like if your child is still experiencing soreness after three days, get them to the hospital immediately. When you're doing it with a rock in the middle of the desert, chances are infection is setting in. And through some accounts, if you have an infection from circumcision on the third day, you're, you're, you're useless. And that's why it says in the scripture that they attacked them while they felt they were safe. They, they, they were happy for their walls. They were happy for their safety. No enemies from their point of view or anywhere around there 
So, okay, so we can get through this infection or whatever is happening. It says that they were sore. That's why we think maybe they were infected. And they know on the third day, that's our day. I don't know if it was just two of them or if it was two of them plus servants. The two of them, the the two, Levi and Simeon, they carried the responsibility, even if it was them and servants, but it could have just been two of them because the type of incapacitation would would be enough, would be enough to where nobody is stopping them from doing what they're doing. They're masking their deceit with religion. There is a danger here. Apart from everything we're seeing here, there's a danger that the people of God would be, would be erased. In becoming one people, it's not one people of God. Those people would serve their gods. The, the Israelites would serve Yahweh. And before long, they would just be serving the other gods because we see this in the rest of the scripture. So there is a danger here that God is not going to allow. He won't allow it no matter what happens. He didn't need Levi and Simeon to do what they did. That was wicked. We see that in the scripture. Scripture makes that clear, that what they did was above and beyond. It made Jacob a stink in the nostrils of those who are around him. So they make this plan. It seems um, um, probable, but there are certain key things that make it impossible. In verses 25 through 31, we see them carry out their plan, the destruction. In verse 25, second to turn here. On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives. This revenge became so much worse than the crime. Because what did those little ones, what did the wives, what did every male who was not Shechem deal, do with these things? But that's the thing, when it comes, when we are in our righteous anger, we don't stop to think, what, is, what would God want in this? It is somewhat hard not to at least agree with the sentiment and motives behind Levi and and Simeon. If no one else is going to stick up for our sister, we will. It's the lengths they go to and their disregard for the Lord or what might be called justice in this situation. That process often is repeated. When we have our hobby horse, our holy crusade, we don't stop and ask, is this just? In churches, this happens all the time. I'm not gossiping, pastor. I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just telling the truth. People rage against their pastor. They rage against their brother and sister in Christ. And they tell themselves they are on the right side of things. Not realizing what they're doing is the job of Satan. And don't worry, Satan has that job covered. You do not need to be the accuser of the brethren, nor do you need to be the divider amongst God's people. In verse 25, we have that reference to the third day. I'm really not sure what the significance is. I know this. We shouldn't be tempted to try to assign this significance to the resurrection of Christ or to that of Jonah because the text doesn't give us that connection nowhere in the scripture text, even beyond this. 
The best I was able to find that circumcision was done roughly, and I had mentioned that before, incapacitating on the third day. These, these two, their revenge is greater than the crime. Romans 12, 19 tells us to leave room for the wrath of God. There are so many good reasons for this, but one is that revenge often includes more, includes more, um, more, har- more harm than, than just to the person who has committed the offense. We look at the law of God and it's often, it's often gone under scrutiny or criticism. The law that says an eye for an eye, broken tooth for a broken tooth. Muhammad Gandhi is famous for saying that makes the whole world blind and toothless. Before the law of God, this is what happens. Kill everyone. The law of God restrained evil. The law of God is perfect. But the law of God's not the only voice. The grace of God is a voice. The law of God reveals to us our sin. The grace of God saves us. But the law of God in and of itself is perfect. And without the law of God, we see here above and beyond. Verses 27 through 29, when God will use one nation to judge another, he often has to judge that nation too, because they go above and beyond. Here we see that in the micro, as these two go overboard, they kill all the men, then take their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, their children, and their wives. There's a Japanese proverb that says, if you seek vengeance, you should dig two graves. When it comes to bitterness, revenge, and unforgiveness, the first casualty is you. And before long, it's just drinking poison, waiting for the other person to die. Oftentimes, the person we're upset with, they don't even know we're upset with them. And we're the one drinking that poison. Jacob's reaction is very telling in verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stink to the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and the Pezzasites. My number, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. And I and my household. Where was this indignation for Shechem and Hamar? Sometimes I think the only thing that actually brings out emotion for some people is when you attack their pocketbook. Where was all of this? Jacob's reaction here in verse 30, we see Jacob's reaction and it's selfish. He's worried about himself and the reprisal of what they have done. Jacob finally understands what Isaac felt when Isaac, when Esau came into the tent and he started trembling violently. His son, his own son, had made him a fool, had made him a stink in the inhabitants of those in the region. They badly need to return to Bethel. You know, we, do, we, we try it on our own so much. Even as believers, even as people who are redeemed by the Lord, we, we, we start with grace and we think, okay, now from here I'm going to go to works and I'm trying to, I'm trying to achieve my own salvation from here, my own sanctification, and we end up in Shechem. And then after a while, we need to actually stop and think, okay, I need to go back to Bethel. I need to go back to the place I was at. Just like the Ephesians, right? He tells them, remember from where you have fallen. Remember your first love. Return. Repent and return back to that good place. In verse 31, when Jacob and Simeon are called to account, all they have to say back It's kind of a snide comment. I said before, you're not going to put this on a coffee mug. Maybe one of you smart Alex will do it anyway, but chances are you're probably not. Verse 31, but they said, 
Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? You think Jacob at this point in time is like, that's for Shechem. What about all his people? He remains passive even here. When he's nearing his death, though, he settles the matter. I do believe it is fully, it is possible that in this life, a person's sins will not come back at them, but in the next. I've yet to see that happen, honestly, in real life, though. Somebody who acts deceitfully in their life, it comes at them. A person who lives to deceive others and laughs at it, it comes back at them, and then they say, God, why is this happening to me? And God just gives the mirror of his law. That's why it's happening to you. And chapter 49 Verses five and seven, when Jacob is blessing his sons, he settles the matter. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel or my glory not be joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men. We're talking about this situation right here. And their willfulness, they hamstring oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob's prophecy comes true. Let's start with Levi. Comes true in a good way for Levi. is actually a blessing. See, all the 12 tribes of Israel, they have their plot of land given to them by God. It can never be sold for, for, for good. It can be kind of rented, but on the year of Jubilee, it has to be returned. And this is, this is an absolute rule of God that even when Israel is at their most Sinful is observed, except for the Levites. And it's because the Levites stood with the Lord when there was the golden calf, they become the priests. And their inheritance is the Lord instead of a plot of land. Simeon, on the other hand, after a while in the book of Kings, just gets absorbed into Judah and loses all their distinctiveness. Redemption is a long road. You might be in the middle of chaos right now, and you might be looking at your situation, you're like, is it ever going to end? You know, I sure hope it's not as bad as what I've just been reading here. But I want you to be encouraged that this is not the final word. The situation you're in right now is not the final word. Your moment of chaos right now is not the final word. God's redemption is lo- takes longer than what we want it to, but it is more glorious and more wonderful than we could ever hope. There is not even a whisper of hope in this chapter, but we know because we've read the end of the story that at the end of the book of beginnings, there's forgiveness, there is peace. This chapter isn't the only chapter in these people's lives and this chapter you're in is not the only chapter in your life. There are things God is doing here that will come to light later on ways he will use the wickedness of the people for his glory and for your good that you can't see either. We don't have the benefit of knowing the end from the beginning. We just have this hope. And what do we do when we've done everything to follow the Lord and we're still in this moment of chaos? We wait upon the Lord. Isaiah 40 for 31. By the way, worship team, you can come up at this time. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Sometimes we're just in a place of waiting. Waiting is terrible, right? It used to be called, called long-suffering. 
that's a good name for waiting and patience because I don't know about you, but if I'm in line at the grocery store behind you and you're, you're writing the checkout and you waited, you waited until the very last moment to start, you probably noticed me tapping my foot, muttering to myself, I don't like waiting. It's like long suffering. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount upon wings like evils. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, we could go to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, right? Weeping. In chapter 3, verse 25, it says, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's so hard for us because we want to be doing something. We want to see movement. Come on. Sometimes we position ourselves under the waterfall of grace and we have to go through a period of time where we realize the Lord really is enough when he's all that we have. Worship team, would you play for us our final song? During this final song, you need to ask yourself right now, are you in Bethel or are you in Shechem? Metaphorically speaking. Are you doing things your own way? Or are you in the house of God? During this last song, it's our moment to reflect on the Lord. Maybe you don't know the Lord today, and today's the day of salvation. If you would say, if I died right now, I don't know where I'd go. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Repent from your sin and turn to the Lord. And today, if you're, in a, if you're just in a spot of chaos, you're in the spot of tragedy, wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. It feels to us like a long road, but God is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. And today, if you're in Shechem, return to Bethel.